Don't be afraid to write crap, because crap is the best fertilizer. And the more crap you write, the more likely it is that you'll grow something amazing. Oxford University, turn up, tune out, plug in. Welcome to episode five of the Oxford University podcast. In today's episode, we talk to the legendary songwriting coach, Pat Patterson, well known for his role as a mentor for John Mayer during his formative years as a musician in Boston. If you're someone who's interested in the craft of songwriting, this is going to be of particular interest to you. We cover a whole range of subjects from lyrical stability versus instability, additive versus subtractive rhymes, and teaching John Mayer. There's a whole lot more, so settle in and enjoy this interview with Pat Patterson. Interview time. Well, Pat Patterson, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Appreciate your time. If we could just start off, could you just introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about how you got into the field of songwriting? Well, my background is I was a philosophy major at the University of Minnesota. Mm. And I took uh, minors in English and humanities. Went to graduate school in philosophy at Indiana University and did everything but my dissertation for my PhD and did a master's degree in literary criticism. Then went to the University of Notre Dame and taught there for two years. I taught philosophy there. Uh, And in the meantime, started a band And so when I finished uh, uh, teaching at Notre Dame, I started touring with my band. Who we chose? Who? Uh, The Doobie Brothers. Have you heard of them? Yeah. Yeah, It wasn't the Doobie Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) What style was it? It was was sort of of Fleetwood Mac, Eagle-ish kind of stuff. Original music. So I was writing all the songs. I had no idea what I was doing. Really? Uh, So we toured for, for a while. Uh, and then uh, we were doing an East Coast tour, uh, and we we were playing at a place down on uh, uh, d- down down in the harbor, and a, a Berkeley kid was really in love with the band, and he told me that there was this opening teaching English mm-hmm. at Berkeley, and I'd already decided that uh, I really didn't want to be on the road anymore. And I really miss teaching. Uh, and so I applied for the job in the English department and got it because all of my f- uh, philosophy degree had been in linguistic philosophy mm-hmm. and then my master's in literary criticism. Mm-hmm. So they hired me as an English teacher. And the first thing that I, uh, well, I, I, taught the, I taught the first philosophy courses here. Wow. I teach the poetry courses here, still do. And then I decided I'd teach a course in literary criticism. So I called it The Analysis of Song Lyrics. And it was wildly popular, wildly popular. So I started applying the uh, concept of literary criticism and linguistic philosophy to Joni and Paul Simon and Mm. Dylan and Cohen and Steely Dan. And it all started making sense. And so the president at that time, uh, because of the popularity of this class, called me up to his office and said, 
Um, do you think it's possible to make a living as a songwriter? And so I lied and said yes. Uh, and he, uh, he said, well, I think it would be interesting to put together some folks and see if, see if we could get a major going in songwriting. And so I handed him the 13-course uh, prospectus that I'd put together, knowing probably what, what he'd be asking. And he said, I wish all of my requests were met with such alacrity. And so we went into committee for a couple of years, and that became the first songwriting major ever in the world. Wow. And uh, we just kept going with that. Mm. So, in, you know, in the meantime, of course, I was down in Nashville writing songs and so on. But uh, I, when I was about 35, I realized that I am a teacher who writes, not a writer who teaches. Okay. And that made a huge difference to me in terms of how I approach writing. Because it was really all about bringing everything I was learning in my writing sessions back to the classroom. Hmm. So you really developed some strong ideas about the elements of what good songwriting is through analysis. Yep. Wow. Yeah, what is it that every, that every verse, every chorus, every bridge that you'll ever write what do they all have in common? What are the building blocks that happen every time you write a verse? And so I did that kind of analysis. Hmm. And if you can isolate the elements that will always happen, then you can take control of them. So that, for example, every, every section you will ever write will have, now wait for this, will have some number of lines. Mike drop. I know. <laughs> and and, and, and the, the minute you understand that, then you start understanding things. Well, wait a minute. An even number of lines feels even, feels balanced, feels resolved, feels stable. An odd number of lines feels odd, feels incomplete, feels unbalanced, feels unstable. So that just knowing that the number of lines that you use will all by itself create a feeling means that if I'm going to say to you, I'm really happy to be here, and I mean it, it should feel like I mean it, so I would do it in an even number of lines. But if I said, wow, I'm really happy to be here, and did it in an odd number of lines, something would feel a little strange about that, and it wouldn't feel like I meant it. Mm. So that was the whole concept of prosody, of how you put it together by, the, by itself creates feeling, and you can put that feeling in the service of what you mean to say. Mm. And so that's the, that's the relationship of at least that small part of structure, the number of lines, mm. then you can take control of that. Mm. What is my intent in this verse? Am I, do I mean it? Do, is it the truth? Is it something that I want to really stand behind? Okay, 
that now says something about the number of lines I might want to use. Mm. So now that's very interesting because as an MP&E major, um, I come at um, prosody from a f- sonic point of view, like Absolutely. trying to represent the meaning of the song with the arrangement and the production and how that can illustrate um, what you're talking about. So all of those, as prosody suggests, all of those things being one, there being a unity yep. to those things. Now, other than the number of lines, what are some other crucial elements in your eyes for a good song, the language itself that's being used? Well, in, ter- in terms of the structure, there's in t- for, for a lyricist, there are essentially five things. There's the number of lines. There's the length of your lines. So that if you match two lines in their length, it will feel balanced. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by the toe. feels balanced. If the lines are unequal length, Mary had a little lamb, fleece was white as snow, that wants to move Mm -hmm. so that uh, you can create stability and instability not only with your number of lines but with your line lengths so Paul Simon uh, four in the morning crapped out yawning longing my life away I'll never worry why should I it's all gonna fade and that feels odd Mm, that, that feels with the anticipation that that feels like wait a minute there's something missing there which now says that it's all going to fade has kind of a sad or unbalanced or unstable feeling mm. as opposed to four in the morning crapped out yawning longing my life away I'll never worry why should I it's all going to fade someday now it feels like yeah just saying first the pain then you die mm. um Suck it up, princess. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, get over it, move on. Yeah, same old story. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, the element to draw the listener along with you, the little carrot, dangling the carrot to yep. sort of draw you into the depth of the song. Yeah. So that's your number of lines, then your rhyme scheme. And your rhyme schemes can be stable or unstable. Mm. You know, A, A, B, B, thud, blood, crash, bash. Mm. Very stable. A, B, A, B, thud, crash, blood, bash, still stable. Thud, crash, bash, blood, now is unstable. And take a look at James Taylor's Sweet Baby James for that A, B, B, A rhyme scheme in the verses. And it just feels so open. And flip, flip line three and four, and it feels closed. Have you heard of subtractive or additive rhymes? Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, uh, an additive rhyme. Free trees. Subtractive rhyme. Trees free. Taking one element away or adding yeah. it at the end of the rhyme. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, it turns out um, that, that a... Uh, uh, an additive rhyme is a little more stable than a subtractive rhyme because mm. an additive rhyme of, of free trees already finishes the cadence with free tree and then adds something else. Mm. Whereas trees free 
wait, there's something missing. Hmm. That's like shortening a line. Yeah. It's also like a three-line sequence. So we're always talking about prosody. We're talking about stability versus instability and using all of that in order to uh, uh, support what you have to say. Mm. And obviously that, that whole thing, uh, the whole concept of prosody, which I consider the most important concept in all arts, uh, has to do with uh, the sonic, uh, uh, the whole sonic level that you're working with as a producer, has to do with your arrangement, uh, has to do with how much you add or subtract, you know, it has to do with choreography. It has to do with film editing. Mm. You know, prosody is everywhere. Mm. The appropriate relationship between elements. Awesome. Um, now, Pat, sometimes I sit down with the intention of writing a song. I'm like, all right, I'm going to write a song today. Be, be a professional, as they say. And sometimes I find it difficult if I don't have a personal con connection to the lyrics like it, it can feel a little contrived um how do i write a meaningful song if i have no immediate ideas um find yourself uh, uh, an immediate idea <laughs> how do we how do we find that how do we find those ideas well uh they're everywhere you have to learn to listen to whatever it is uh, around you and find something that you feel like can center a song. Like a song seed? Like a song seed. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm a real fan of collecting little phrases that might serve as some kind of a hook that I can, in my phrase, run through the boxes. Mm. Uh, something that I can repeat two or three times and each time you hear it, it will mean more than the time before. Mm. So I'm listening for those little song ideas. Mm. Uh, and I have a, have a, a file uh, of titles. I also have a, a file of what I call fragments of, uh, or, or spare parts mm. of lines or something that I know aren't going to be a title, but they're certainly going to be interesting. So I'll find places for those in songs. Mm. You know, I, I want to, when, I, when I'm listening for ideas, I'll try to see if I can make them move forward. Uh, so, for example, the phrase, I just want to know. I just want to know. So how about, um, well, hi, it's, it's really great to see you. You look really happy. Um, are you as happy as you look? I, I, I don't want to pry, but I just want to know. So then I would call box one. Hey, what's up? I just want to know. Mm. Box two. Because when you left me, you know, you moved in with him really fast. And I just, you know, uh, was that picture of, of us by the, by, the, uh, by the river that you keep on your dresser? Did you kind of hide that? Uh, when he came over, I, I know it doesn't matter now, but I just want to know. Um, because remember, third box, uh, when, when we first met, I said, you know, um, I, I want to be able to tell you everything. And, and I, I, I want you to be able to tell me everything. Because, you know, if we're lying to each other, then it, if I don't tell you everything, 
and you tell me that you love me, I can't believe you because you don't really know me. So I want to tell you everything and I want you to tell me everything. That was our agreement. You could have told me about him. You know, it's not like I would have tried to stop you. I, I just want to know. Very nice. And so I just want to know has now gained weight in my, in my language, has gained weight each time. And so I'll put it in my title file. Mm. Now, it, it may not be exactly that scenario, but I do, I do know that I can make it move. Mm. And if I can make it move, then when I say, I think I'll write a song today, then I can go to my title file, and that may pop out and say, wait, I've got something for that. Something just happened to me. And so now I know that I can develop it. Mm. And now it's just a matter of what, uh, what are the basic ideas that are going to go into the, each box. So do you always start with the title and work backwards? Boy, I sure, th you know, it, it, uh, I wrote in Nashville for 20 years, and, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll walk into, uh, into the writing room at 10 o'clock, and, uh, you know, well, the first 15 minutes, of course, are always uh, the rule in Nashville for the first 15 minutes of your co-write is you have to bitch about the music industry. Uh, and then after you bitch about the music industry for 15 minutes, then comes the hinge in the session. You say, got any ideas? And both of you pull out your hook book, or in, or, or in my case, uh, my title file. And we start reading titles to each other. Um, and you know, if I read you a title, um, and you say, yeah, what else you got? All you're saying to me is, I don't really feel like I've got anything to add to that idea. And so we'll just go together, you know, reading each other's titles until we find one that we want to work on. Then I'll say, hey, you know, how do you see that moving? I say, well, you know, you look really happy, etc. Okay, yeah, let's try that. And so we write that. And, you know, from 10.15 to 2 or 3 in the afternoon, we're going to have a song. And it's going to be done. Uh, and so writing from a title is a really, really effective thing. My, my, my basic um, uh, take on that is whatever song seed you have, whether it's a melody, whether it's a chord progression, whether it's uh, uh, somebody asking you to write a song for their wedding, whatever it may be, that your job, in my book, is to find your title at your earliest possible convenience. So if you as a producer give me a track and you want me to top line, the first thing I can do is I'm going to listen to your track and see if it has the kind of motion that a really good song has. Does it end up in a place where it really feels like that's the arrival point? And when that happens, what kind of feeling does that give me? And now it's my earliest possible convenience. And so I will go into my title book and see if I've got any titles that make me feel like what your track made me feel. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, then I'm not going to just start writing if I really like your track. I'm going to go around uh, in, in the world of ideas listening for something that feels like it should be the title for that track. Mm -hmm. And once I find that, then I'll just go through the regular process of building my boxes, going to my rhyming dictionary, building a worksheet, um, uh, and uh, 
writing the top line for your for your track. So or whatever it may be. So does does a good song have to have a chorus and a bridge? Does it have to have that typical structure in order to be a good song in your eyes? Uh, no. I mean, from 1908 to 1958, no songs had choruses, or very few songs. It was A-A-B-A. Mm. You know, the standards, all of the Tin Pan Alley stuff was just verse, refrain, verse, refrain, bridge, verse, refrain. Verse, refrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so right, right around you know, the time when uh, rock and roll came around, uh, uh, choruses started to happen. They happened before that, but that was really the thing that, okay, here's eight bars and then here's the next four bars because we're working with rock and roll for sort of the blues form. Mm. And so that uh, other four bars was kind of, oh, that's where we put the chorus. Uh, mm. And, you know, it's it, sometimes a lot different than that, but uh, so, so the answer is great songs don't have to be of typical forms. And that's more and more true uh, these days because now we have breakdown sections, we have uh, the rap thing, we have you know, all, of, all of the various uh, elaborations of the basic repetition form. But, but uh, it's, I think, mostly the case that really great songs do have some element of repetition that's grounding and centering the song. Mm. How you arrange that can be can be varied, but uh, you know I think you you will find that the vast majority of top ten songs fall within a pretty narrow range of song form. Mm. Uh, and if you want to step out and do something really different, your chances of it being picked up and a hit. Mm. Uh, are diminishing, mm. not which isn't to say, if you're the artist, have at it. But if you're pitching to somebody, or if you as a producer are trying to break an artist, breaking an artist with something that's way out could actually be great. Mm. On the other hand, why are you abandoning song form that works really well? Mm. Statement, repetition, Here's another statement, and then the repetition, and then you take a little vacation, and then you come back to the repetition. Mm. That works really well. Uh, verse, refrain, statement, and repetition. Statement and repetition, refrain, bridge, giving you a new look at statement repetition. Mm. So, you know, that uh, it's how you treat your repetition that makes verse, refrain, and verse, chorus by far the most popular and, and most successful forms in songwriting. So it's not just that um, you have a chorus that repeats, it's just maybe that a line repeats or, or the rhythm uh, repeats or there's something familiar that you can establish um, that familiarity with, with the audience, I guess. Which Yeah, oh good, here's that part again. Yeah, something that you know, like, I can oh, I can sing along. Yeah, I, I know it's so clever. Yeah. <laughs> so... That actually leads on well to my next question, that do you think that popular songwriting has gotten worse in recent years? 
Um, well, I've been through several decades of uh, songwriting, and I do have to say that every year and every decade has a lot of shit songs. You know, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. Um, uh, you know, and the, the fact is that, you know, because uh, from Irving Berlin uh, and um, uh, Paul Simon and, you know, you know, the whole line decade after decade after decade, we have a lot of songs from those times that we know and we think are just really great. And those are the songs that manage to survive. Those are the very small percentage of songs that were written that year or that decade that we still listen to because they're really good. Uh, but, you know, go to any decade or any year, pick one, and listen not to the you know, top 10 of the year or the top 100 of the year, but just go back and try to find some of those songs that nobody has ever heard again. And you'll find a lot of shit songs, mm. just like happens today. Mm. You know, I like to say that 90% of everything you write is not your best 10%. 90% of everything you write is not your best 10%. 90% of all of the songs that were written in 1951 were not the best 10%. And it's probably true that from 1951, there may be 6%, 3%, 2% of the songs in 1951 that anybody today would know. And so it's, I, I, th I think, almost disingenuous to say, yeah, you know, the songs today, you know, there's just so much garbage. I wish we were back to the time when there was just as much garbage. <laughs> so, you know, I do, I do think that, um, uh, that Bob Dylan spoiled it for a lot of people, and the Beatles spoiled it for a lot of people, uh, particularly listeners, mm. because they were really good. They wrote their own songs. They're writing their own songs? Oh, good. I'll write my own songs, too. Mm. So that I well remember back when I was teaching at Notre Dame uh, and I had my little band, uh, I, I well remember sending, uh, sending a reel-to-reel a -reel tape to A&M Records mm. uh, and uh, got a letter back saying, we really like what you're doing, but uh, you know, uh, we're only signing people who are writing original songs. Because we, you know, we were doing some fairly esoteric stuff. It was, uh, we were doing a sort of uh, th uh, three guitar uh, and uh, several vocals version of a uh, section of uh, uh, Orff's Car uh, Carmine Burana. You know, just uh, some, and so, uh, a little thing from a, uh, from a Chopin etude that I wrote lyrics to and, wow. you know, stuff like that. They said, wow, it's really, you know, it's really nice, but, um, but really, we're looking for people who write their own songs. I said to myself, how hard can that be? 
And so I started writing Famous songs. Famous last words. Well, it, it, it seemed really easy because uh, I just wrote what came to me. Yeah. You know, and it's not that I dislike any of those songs, but I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. But I had to write my own songs. Mm. Me and, you know, seven million other people writing our own songs, nobody knowing what they're doing. As opposed to what had been happening from Irving Berlin on in Tin Pan Alley, all those cats knew how to write songs. Mm. You know, Rodgers and Hammerstein knew how to write songs. Mm. You know, they did it every day. They, were, they, they knew the craft. Mm. And so people who really knew the craft of songwriting, ten, you know, Neil Diamond, um, Carol King, those folks who were still brill-building kinds of folks, really wrote great songs. But, you know, uh, I'm not really sure that that's true of many of the bands in the 60s and 70s and so on. And it's certainly not necessarily true today. So I really do like the fact that I think uh, that uh, the songwriting major uh, and the spawning of all of the study of songwriting that has come out of Berkeley into many other places in the world mm. is, I think, raising the bar in terms of what it takes to write a decent song. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important, the work that we're doing here. And, you know, people who have graduated from here uh, who are teaching all over the world. There's a, a woman teaching at USC uh, who uh, came out of uh, this program. Um, she's, te she's doing a really great job. So uh, somebody teaching uh, at, uh, at the con in Sydney uh, who was uh, one of our students here and is doing a great job there. So, so that there's all sorts of folks uh, all over the planet now who have come through the program and have really done something to raise the bar. To make uh, make songwriting more of a craft and less of a, yeah, man, I just I just do what comes to me, man. You know, I think it should be like you know, more organic. You know, I just write what's natural, mm. and you know, the, my answer to that is, have you ever tried it any other way? Yeah. Well, no, just because it just comes to me. Like, then you listen to the songs, and yeah, it just came to you. <laughs> I can see that. And I had I had no tools to make it better. Mm. Um, so. You know, studying studying songwriting is the same thing as studying production. No, hey, I have a, I have a I have a computer. I'm going to be a producer. Well, you know, I'd like to wish you a lot of luck. Mm. Uh, reinventing the wheel as you think you are. Yeah. So, so speaking of raising the bar, um, how did you get to know John Mayer? He was one of my students. He was a student in your songwriting lyric writing class. Yep. Was he a songwriting major? No, um, he, undeclared or? he was interested in songwriting because he liked writing songs. Mm. So he came into my class, it was Lyric Writing 1, and what I remember of him in that class was that he was always leaning forward, that uh, he was always asking questions. Mm. I thought, oh, what a good student, what a good student that, that mayor kid is. Uh, and then he left Berkeley after that semester, and then, you know, he blew up a bit. Uh, but it turns out that that semester that he was in my class, which was a spring semester in 99, I think it was, uh, that the only, only thing he was doing that semester was he was coming to my class and he didn't miss a one, and he was going to his guitar lessons with Tomo, and he didn't miss a one. Everything else he blew off. Uh, he was a terrible student 
except for the things that he really knew that he wanted, that he needed. So, um, you know, I, and, and when he blew up, I thought, hmm, Mayor, I remember that name. I think he was in my class, and indeed he was. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't really, that didn't really connect until I had a, until I had a student who handed in his final portfolio to me for one of my classes. And he, he said, I want to confess to you, finally, that uh, I saw John Mayer in, uh, I think it was Dallas, or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think it was Dallas. Uh, and John, he said, hadn't become John Mayer yet, but he's playing all these songs. And I, I went up to him and I said, hey, um, how did you get so good? And he said, you got to get this book. And he told him to get writing better lyrics. And he said, this guy's up at Berkeley, and if you ever, uh, you know, if I were you, I'd head up to Berkeley and study with him. Mm -hmm. And so the kid said, and I did. Um, and so here I am. Um, and so I thought, wow, that's really great. So I found John's uh, management, and I just dropped a note to the management saying, hey, this kid... Um, told me this story, and I just want to pass the thanks on to John for sending him here because the kid's doing really well. Mm. Um, and so then John got back to me, and we've been um, uh, corresponding off and on for a long time now. Mm. That's, that's awesome because I went to the, um, the event that you held at the BPC. Oh, with John? With John. Yeah. And um, it was basically critiquing like five songwriting six six songwriting students and he had he had come a few years before that uh and worked with 12 of my students for an entire week yeah. and and what i got out of that it was actually quite profound for me i ended up actually writing one of my best songs after that um seminar but what you guys kept coming back to in the critique of these students were that the lyrics were sort of often like two-dimensional or like you want to put the listener um, into like, into feeling things, seeing things, like that old um, cliche about a song telling a story. It doesn't have to be a, you know, the, the conventional story structure as long as you can create an idea in their mind or you, you can transport them somewhere or make them feel something. And the use of the language often would just take just a small tweak um, to what sort of language was being used and how visceral, how much you could uh, imagine that. And can can you talk about the well, the importance of that sort of language? Sure, sensebound language is is uh, is what we're talking about. Mm. You know, when John when John starts off. Um, Great big bang and dinosaurs, fiery rain and meteors. Everybody's got a picture in their head. Yeah, instantly. John's words are full of your stuff. Mm. So it's about you. And so you're immediately in because he has stimulated your senses and made you see or smell or taste or touch something. And because it's, uh, I rewrote uh, the lyric to You're Gonna Live Forever in Me uh, 
uh, instead of a great big bang and dinosaurs, fiery rain and meteors, uh, I wrote, time moves on age by age, history just fades away. Which means the same thing. But you're watching me tell you something rather than participating with your own images. Mm. So the difference between generic and abstract language, head language, and sense-bound language is the difference between you watching me tell you something and you experiencing something mm. as a listener. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole series of exercises around this uh, notion of uh, object writing, which was a concept of mine decades ago, um, that John uses all the time, uh, and that Gillian Welch, who just uh, was up for an Oscar for her uh, uh, song, uh, what is it, um, When Cowboys Trade In Their Spurs for Wings. Uh, she was up for an Oscar for that from the ballad of somebody or other, uh, one of the Coen Brothers films. So when, when, you, uh, uh, when you start stimulating your listener's senses, and then also there's a whole series of metaphor exercises that John's aware of and Gillian's aware of that uh, keep you sense-bound, and, and, and then the sense-bound stuff you pick mm. is going to go beyond itself. So in that same song, You're Gonna Live Forever in Me, John has a line, time leaves no fruit on the trees. Yeah. Um, and I rewrote that line, time leaves us nothing to see. Um, uh, which I was really proud of because I left you nothing to see. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah, time leaves no fruit on the trees. Nice metaphor. Mm. What piece of fruit are we talking about for you, mm. etc. Whatever that is that connects yeah. with you. And I think that's very interesting because it's sort of like, it's not a paper that you're writing for school. It's like condensing meaning into its most condensed form. form. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love, uh, do you know the song Baltimore by Randy Newman? I do. Yeah, it just comes straight off the bat. It just says, beat up little seagulls uh, in a hard town by the sea. Yeah. Instantly, there's this image of a seagull in a in a town by the sea you don't know what's going on but you're instantly transported into that scene the song is actually quite political and uh, has a lot of depth and substance to it but nowhere does it ever say anything about randy newman's political beliefs sure. or anything he's just painting this picture which allows the listener to arrive at their own or broken windows empty hallways pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray Human kindness is overflowing, and I think it's going to rain today. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so visceral. Sense-bound language. So visceral. It's a big deal. Do you have a favorite songwriter? No, if I did, it'd be, I'd be prejudiced. Um, yeah. You know, in terms, of, in terms of who's really killing it today. Yeah, who, what about today, yeah? Yeah, John Mayer. John Mayer. Yeah, Gillian Welch. You know, they're, they're still, still alive. Uh, what was it? Uh, uh, we're still here. Was that the Patriots thing? We're yeah. still here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, John has been setting the bar for pop songwriting for a while. Yeah. He t he told me that uh, he's been handing my book out to various people, 
He said he, he gave my book to Shawn Mendez, gave my book to Justin Bieber. And B, he said Bieber wrote, uh, called him a couple of weeks later saying, I wrote my first metaphor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big breakthrough when you when you you think it's just about writing lyrics to a rhythm and goes with a song but it doesn't make it a song it doesn't make it powerful songwriting yeah. and i am a big fan of the book songwriting without boundaries i told you that yeah um, my family would do it over the coffee tape uh, over coffee in the morning and yeah. my dad is the king of this like he could take a one minute exercise and you mean the 90 second one? the 90 second exercise yeah. and just almost have you in tears yeah. with the like just how condensed he he could uh present that idea and he's a avid reader and obviously he's got a grasp of of these things yeah but you yeah, that really tickled me when you um emailed me and said that you, your family had been using songwriting without boundaries yeah, and they still do it. Mum and Dad still do it. That's they'll great. still send me excerpts. Like they'll be traveling around in their, in their van and going to different locations, and then they'll do these, or, or they'll make up their own topics and say, mm -hmm. "All right, let's go five minutes on this topic." Yeah, and it's really powerful for getting your mind working. I find all those sorts of things like um, journaling or just getting uh, movement flow like. A lot of the people who have interviewed just say that get started. Like um, Jason Stokes was saying, like uh, when you when you're still, you just want to be still. But when you're moving, then that's when like act, then action flows from that. Yeah. So I think these exercises are really great, like that, and just for people to take that attitude of writing on a topic. Don't get too attached to the meaning or if it's going to be the best thing in the world but exercising that muscle as you would really know as a as a songwriter sure um pat it's 450 i think we've almost run out of time i really yeah. appreciate your time thanks for speaking to us pleasure yeah yeah just write fearlessly that's my message write fearlessly ah i'll leave you with this don't be afraid to write crap because crap is the best fertilizer. And the more crap you write, the more likely it is that you'll grow something amazing. Well, that's all, that's folks. All. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Oxcord University podcast with Pat Patterson. I think there are a bunch of nice gems in there for songwriters out there. I know I certainly got a lot out of it. There will be more content coming up in future weeks. And if you have ideas for episodes, feel free to send us an email at oxcorduniversity at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you for episode six.